we are now halfway through the month and the clock is definitely ticking. In fact, there is only 12.3% left for 2022 and there's only a month and a half left to go. This is another regular installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement, a newsletter and podcast that seeks to be published as often as is necessary. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs, an award-winning journalist and freelance member of the Virginia Press Association. On today's program, continuing updates on the gun-fueled murders of several members of the University of Virginia football team. Concern continues to mount about the convergence of flu season with the presence of RSV, as well as the background of the continuously evolving COVID virus. A new roundabout opens tomorrow at the intersection of US 250 and Route 151 in Albemarle County. Charlottesville gets funding to acquire property across Moores Creek from Azalea Park for a new alignment of the Rivanna Trail. And Delegate Sally Hudson briefs the Albemarle Board of Supervisors on ranked choice voting. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, crisp and colorful leaves, hot cocoa, snow days. There are plenty of reasons to get excited about fall and winter, but the return of high heating bills is not one of them. Your local energy nonprofit, Leap, has been empowering Virginians with energy efficiency and solar solutions since 2010. With programs for all income levels, residents can access upgrades like insulation, LED bulbs, low flow fixtures, and affordable rooftop solar systems. Visit leapva.org to learn more and fill out the Leap Services inquiry form to lower high heating bills and stay cozy this winter. Last night, hundreds, if not thousands of people, filled the lawn at the University of Virginia to mourn the murder of three students murdered Sunday night. Classes at the University of Virginia are not in session today for a second day of mourning for the murder of Devin Chandler, Lavelle Davis Jr., and Deshaun Perry. All three were members of the football team, and Coach Tony Elliott posted a message across social media yesterday that's worth looking at in the newsletter. A fourth student has not been identified officially, but the Cavalier Daily and others are reporting a tweet from someone believed to be the mother of one of the two who were injured. For more on the story, do take a look at other accounts in local media. Around the same time the lockdown at the University of Virginia was lifted, Charlottesville police and UVA police began work on investigating a series of social media posts that made threats against UVA. Here's a section from the press release. CPD opened an investigation into the postings and the individual believed to be responsible for posting them. At approximately 4 p.m., Charlottesville detectives obtained and subsequently served a search warrant for an address associated with the suspect in the 200 block of West Main Street in the city of Charlottesville. They then arrested 31-year-old Brian Michael Silva and charged him with weapons possession by a felon and possession of a controlled substance. Silva rose to fame as an internet personality whose armed standoff with Charlottesville police in 2016 resulted in a previous jail sentence. 
At this time, CPD does not believe that Mr. Silva's threats were related to the events that occurred at the University of Virginia. However, they said they acted due to the fear that they believed this caused in the community, and they wanted to act swiftly to resolve this particular investigation. Silva is being held without bond at the Albemarle Charlottesville Regional Jail. As for shooting suspect Christopher Darnell Jones Jr., he is expected to appear in Albemarle County Court tomorrow as the University of Virginia is technically within that jurisdiction. The colder weather this week comes at a time when flu cases are rising across the country and while respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is peaking. RSV is something most people are expected to get at some point when they are children. Dr. Debbie Ann Shirley is an infectious disease expert at UVA Children's Hospital. And adults get RSV too. Um, it tends to be more severe at the extremes of age, so very young children, and um, the elderly um, can um, develop more severe RSV. In young children, that can look like um, a pneumonia or bronchiolitis. Bronchiolitis is the inflammation of the small airways in the lung. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Shirley said this has resulted in more hospitalizations of children to assist them with breathing. There is uh, not currently um, a, a good RSV treatment, like an antiviral, um, and there's not currently a vaccine available. Um, uh, however, um, for uh, select very high-risk infants, there is a monoclonal antibody that can be given uh, monthly as an injection uh, throughout RSV season. Dr. Shirley said that before the pandemic, RSV was fairly predictable, with rises expected in fall, with a winter peak before subsiding in the warmer months when almost no cases were found. But that changed because of the year of the shutdown. First, a complete disappearance of RSV, um, and um, we didn't see the typical um, peak during the fall of 2020 into the winter of 2021, and then we started to see um, um, interseasonal, um, out-of-season spread. And so RSV has become very unpredictable. And now this season, um, uh, we um, saw a very early um, and rapid peak in RSV cases. Dr. Shirley said that meant between 10 and a dozen new patients admitted each day for RSV during the peak, and that that number had dropped slightly as of last week. The situation may be worse because many children born during the pandemic did not have regular exposure. We're not yet able to, to breathe any um, sigh of relief. One, because we don't know how long or how sustained this current um, peak will be. And two, because um, uh, we are really starting to see an uptick in flu, including severe flu and children being admitted with the flu. Dr. Shirley said it is important to take a COVID test when symptoms present themselves to rule that out. She also urged the importance of wearing a face mask to limit transmission and isolating when ill. One of her colleagues added this advice. Dr. Kosti Safri is the director of hospital epidemiology for UVA. Most importantly, if you're feeling sick, you know, stay at home. Don't spread um, illness to others. And really, we, we can't emphasize enough, now is the time to get your, your flu vaccine. Safri said this is also a good time to get a bivalent COVID vaccine if you have not already done so. The Virginia Department of Health today reports a seven-day average of 891 new cases. That trend has been declining since the end of the summer. 
A new traffic pattern will begin tomorrow at the intersection of US 250 and Route 151 in Nelson County. The Virginia Department of Transportation expects that vehicles will be routed through a new roundabout beginning at 9 a.m. Here's a section from a VDOT press release. Flaggers will control traffic through the intersection while the traffic signals at the intersection are removed and pavement striping is completed. The traffic switch will be complete and the flagging operation removed by 3 p.m., at which time traffic will use the roundabout for all movements through the intersection. This will not be the end of construction, however. Work will continue outside the travelway until February. This project is one of six being built by Curtis Contracting under a $28.5 million contract. Another is the Diverging Diamond at US 250 and Interstate 64. That project opened to traffic this past weekend. The four completed projects are the reconfiguration of I-64's exit 118 to add a traffic light on US 29 to access to eastbound I-64, a roundabout at Route 20 and Profit Road, a connector road between Rio Mills Road and Burkmar Drive, and a second turn lane from northbound US 29 onto Fontaine Avenue into Charlottesville. All six of those projects went through the smart scale process. The Virginia Land Conservation Foundation has awarded nearly $15 million in grants to help localities preserve land from development. That includes $175,000 for Charlottesville to purchase 8.6 acres of land in Albemarle County along Moores Creek. That falls under the Open Spaces and Parks category. The money can be used to purchase property, acquire conservation easements, or some other method of preserving land. In this case, Charlottesville will use the funding to buy land currently used by the International Rescue Committee for an urban farming project. Charlottesville Parks planner Chris Jensik responded to an email I sent, and he said that the property is a priority for developing the Moores Creek Greenway, as it will allow for a shared use path, and for the Rivanna Trail to stay on the same side of Moores Creek as the trail that's upstream. That means that they won't have to build a bridge, which would cost as much or more than the land itself. Jensik said Albemarle County is aware of the potential purchase and have made comments related to its compliance with the county comprehensive plan. Other projects also received funding in the area. The Nature Conservancy will get nearly $72,000 for 179 acres at Ghent Branch in the Elk Conservation Area. The Piedmont Environmental Council will get $500,000 for farmland protection along Brook Run, covering about 698 acres in Culpeper County. The Piedmont Environmental Council will also get $237,500 for farmland protection on about 340 acres in Orange County. Just a disclosure, the Piedmont Environmental Council is a sponsor of the Week Ahead newsletter that comes out on Sundays. You can check for a full list of what received funding in a link in the newsletter. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second subscriber-supported shout-out, an area nonprofit wants you to know about what they offer to help you learn how to preserve, protect, and appreciate trees. The Charlottesville Area Tree Stewards holds several events throughout the year, including a walk in western Albemarle County on the morning of November 20th. This will be through a well-preserved and highly diverse woodland 
to see naturally occurring winterberry, spicebush, and dogwood laden with red berries. In abundance will be nuts from forest oaks, hickories, walnuts, as well as orchard-grown Chinese chestnuts, walnuts, pecans, and American hazelnuts. Registration is limited. Want to know more about how to identify non-native plants so you can help get rid of them over the winter? There's a two-part class for that, and that begins on December 7th via Zoom. Visit charlottesvilleareatreestewards.org to learn more. Tomorrow, the Albemarle Board of Supervisors will discuss what the Electoral Board might need if a directive was given to adopt an alternative method of selecting candidates. Delegate Sally Hudson briefed the elected officials with control over elections policy on what is known as ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting is an election reform that is now being adopted across the country on both coasts and everywhere in between. Hudson said ranked choice would encourage participation both by voters and by candidates who might feel they have a better chance of making the ballot and getting elected. She also said this method would elect people who can build consensus. Consensus builders who are invested in the very real work of bringing people together to get good governing done. And so that's what has motivated me to be so passionate about this topic for some years now. Under ranked choice voting, people select more than one candidate. You get to rank the candidates from most to least favorite. Hudson said the state of Maine has been using ranked choice voting since 2018. There's a whole list of frequently asked questions about the process in a link in the newsletter. In many cases, there are still only two candidates for a particular office. But in the event that more than two candidates run, the ranked choice voting really starts to come into play. Voters do not have to rank candidates if they don't want to do so. If no candidate wins a majority on the first round of voting, a runoff election can be counted immediately by dropping out candidates at the bottom. If there are several candidates, this process can take many rounds. A ranked choice or an instant runoff election is just like the runoff elections that have been conducted in the South for years. You just don't drag everybody back to the polls and make them cast another ballot to determine the winner in the head-to-head -head final race. There's even an example of how the concept works in recent history. On August 20th, 2011, the Charlottesville Democratic Party selected their nominees for city council in a firehouse primary. Seven candidates were on the ballot, and voting took five rounds. Write-in candidates could still play a role, and in this case, that's happened before. In 1993, Sally Thomas won election to the Board of Supervisors on a write-in vote for the Samuel Miller District, in 2019, a write-in candidate for the Rivanna district, who failed to qualify for the ballot, still received a third of the vote. Legislation carried by Hudson in 2020 passed the General Assembly and authorizes local government bodies to authorize the use of ranked choice voting for local office. It's up to the local body to determine how far they want to go. Whether that ordinance could include primaries, general elections, or both, the, um, the state code is flexible on that. Hudson said the county's costs would be to adjust the voting equipment to handle the counts. She said all vendors are offering this service. The county would need to update its ballot scanning software if it wanted to use ranked choice next year. And that's the conversation that Albemarle supervisors will have tomorrow. Hudson said she would defer to Registrar Lauren Eddy about the costs for the update. 
She said parties would like to know if this method is a possibility for next year. Another option would be to eliminate party primaries in favor of a free-for-all in the general election. The system would also be moot if no one wants to run. All three of the supervisors elected in 2021 ran unopposed. That includes first-time supervisor James Andrews. He said he was in favor of the idea because it may spur more to seek office. People's decision to run as candidates can be impacted by ranked choice voting just as much as the electorate's uh, ability to choose their candidates, uh, to choose among the candidates. Hudson said more people have run in New York City's 51-seat council since ranked choice was adopted there, and it has made a difference. They'd never had more than, I think, 18 women. And the year after they adopt ranked choice, they have the first majority women city council in their history. And the vast majority of those are women of color. Further discussion on ranked choice voting is scheduled for tomorrow afternoon in the Board of Supervisors meeting. And that's the end of this installment, what I call 459. The numbers I use to keep track of this program refer to the installments are perhaps not important and may not be accurate. For instance, I put out two newsletters yesterday, but those were to get information about the murder of the three football players committed late Sunday night. You'll notice I didn't have any shout-outs and I tried to sound as neutral as possible. Those didn't get numbered. I resumed a career in journalism as soon as the pandemic hit. I thought I was ready to move on from deadlines and from devoting my life to being ready to write at a moment's notice. But back then, something was missing from my life and I didn't feel complete. When I created a podcast to cover the pandemic in March of 2020, I acted on autopilot, guided by something. We are humans who live in a complex civilization in a world that is always shifting. My sense is that not many people know how all of the pieces fit together or how they can be changed. And I believe that the kind of journalism I practice is intended to provide some of what's missing. At least that's what the imaginary instruction manual for my autopilot seems to say. I am grateful for those who are supporting me. And for today, I'm just going to leave it at that, except to thank Ting for matching Substack subscriptions. Details on all of that tomorrow and into the future. Thank you to Michael Kilpatrick for recording a small blurb today. And thank you to Vraki and the Fundamental Grang, two different entities, for providing audio. The latter even composed a very small informal public service announcement that remixes one of the sound bites heard in today's newsletter. This is for a friend of mine who is trapped in an office today despite having flu-like symptoms. Thanks for listening and more tomorrow. Stay safe out there. Most, most importantly, if you're feeling sick, you know, feeling sick, stay at home, stay at home. Most importantly, if you're feeling sick, you know, you stay at home, stay at home, stay at home, you know, you know, stay at home.